all miracles and must make the most of our limited time here. Each of us have these unique gifts to contribute to the world and it's our job to develop these gifts and give them away. That's why I created the Preschool SLP podcast. The Preschool SLP is about working smarter to create real change in ourselves and in others. Being an SLP is a mission. Let's discuss topics that matter. What are the game-changing strategies? How can we treat the whole child? How can we create the shiniest versions of ourselves and of our clients? We're here at the drawing board for a reason. You bring your own unique gifts. Together, let's create better. Before we start today, I'm going to remind you to make sure if you haven't already, pick up my book, 32 Lessons That Create Lifelong Change and Autism Intervention. This book is an, such a game changer. If you work with children with autism or if you have a child with autism, the book is very thin. It's less than 100 pages. It has 160 tips to put into practice today. These are game-changing tips that are really going to get results. It's written in plain English. I know that this book is going to change the lives of anyone that comes across it. So the, spread the word. If you've gotten the book, make sure to leave a review. Make sure to buy one for your friends. The more lives you can change, the better in the short time we have in this world. All right, let's get into today's lesson. I'm going to talk about terminology that just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. So for instance, you know that I'm starting a doctoral program if you listen to this station in the fall in early childhood education. And my specialty is early childhood development. And I was reading about the early childhood development specialty and it stated on there that the goal was, the primary goal was to train leaders who can develop developmentally appropriate curriculum. Now those words developmentally appropriate really do not sit well with me. They really do make the hairs on the back of my neck stick well, not stick up. And I want to explain four reasons why. Today I'm going to tell you four reasons why we should think twice about using the words developmentally appropriate. I think of my favorite dystopian science fiction novel, which is 1984 from George Orwell. So if you haven't read that book, you got to check it out. It's a thin read and it's really good. And they have something called double speak in which you say something and you actually mean the opposite thing. It's like when you hear a politician speaking and they ask the important questions and they answer the question with both sides of the coin in which they 
cancel out either response. And what they're saying is nothing at the end of the day because they're saying opposite things, double speak. So when I think of developmentally appropriate, I'm going to first think about the definition in the dictionary of what is developmentally appropriate if you look at those two words. So developmental means it pertains to something. That's what it means. So if it's appropriate, that means it's suitable, it fits in. So developmentally appropriate means it pertains to being acceptable, suitable, or fitting in. So just think about those words in themselves. And when you think about NIAC, which is the National Association for the Education of Young Children, they use the words developmentally appropriate, which is about being developmental, pertaining to fitting in and being acceptable and suitable in terms of education and instruction. So let's hear how it works. I'm going to say the NIAC, I'm going to read it verbatim. And whenever I hear the words developmentally appropriate practice, I get kind of a feel like scratching the record. It doesn't sound well to me at all. It's kind of shrieky, but let's go through it. The NIAC defines developmentally appropriate practice as methods that promote each child's optimal development and learning through a strengths-based, play-based approach to joyful, engaged learning. That sounds great. But at the same time, remembering that developmentally appropriate practice means practice that's pertaining to fitting in, to being suitable, to being acceptable, okay? The next line says, educators implement developmentally appropriate practice by recognizing the multiple assets all young children bring to the early learning program as unique individuals and as members of families and communities. Sounds great, but once again, that word developmentally appropriate just doesn't fit the definition that they promote here. Building on each child's strengths and taking care not to harm any aspect of each child's physical, cognitive, social, or emotional well-being, educators design and implement learning environments to help all children achieve their full potential across all domains of development and across all content areas. Now here comes the word again. Developmentally appropriate practice recognizes and supports each individual as a valued member of the learning community. To be developmentally appropriate, practices must be culturally, linguistically, and ability appropriate for each child. So wait a minute here. Stop the music. Who decides what's developmentally appropriate? Is there a NIAC board that says this is developmentally appropriate and this isn't? Why is this word being used again and again, which which literally means it's suitable, it's acceptable, it fits in, and it's put with all of these wonderful idealistic definitions that are all about uniqueness and all about diversity, To me, this is double speak. This is opposite speak, where we talk about the importance of fitting in, of being acceptable, of being suitable. And then we're going to put that with being unique. Let's talk about four reasons why I think we should really rethink using the words developmentally appropriate. 
Because I've seen developmentally appropriate used time and time again in a manner in which it stifles best practices, in a manner in which it goes against the evidence, in which it goes against inclusiveness, in which it goes against neurodiversity. So I'm going to give you these four instances, and then I'm going to ask you at the end to once again rethink this word developmentally appropriate, and maybe thinking of, I'm going to propose a different word instead. Because words are powerful, as William LaBeouf said, they are containers of thought. And when I hear developmentally appropriate, I literally think pertaining to what's acceptable, what's suitable, and what fits in to development. So let's look at this. The first reason why I have a problem with developmentally appropriate is that the research, the evidence indicates that challenge creates change in therapy. So when we look at the latest body of research, it's all pointing in the direction that in terms of speech, in terms of language, and in terms of literacy, the more challenging the treatment target, the greater the gains. So instead of looking at when you're creating goals, well, what is developmentally appropriate for this child to do? You ask the question, what can this child do if I use multimodal cueing and I give them every tool available in our toolbox to create a multi-sensory learning experience? That's what we're interested in. We're not interested in what is the child independently able to do in the sense that we're testing the children. We're interested in teaching the children. To be interested in teaching the children, we need to ask instead, how can the child achieve these more challenging targets? Because when we work on these more challenging targets in therapy, using multimodal cueing, using multisensory learning, you have a cascading impact in which the simpler targets spontaneously and naturally develop. So in my work, I have research that shows that when you use more complex speech treatment targets, you're going to get greater gains across diverse groups of preschoolers. In my research, I show, and I'm not alone, there's other researchers as well that have published research. I present my research and I share it on ResearchGate. That's my way to go. It's the most efficient way to do it. In my research, I show that longer, more complex utterances produce better gains than shorter ones do. I'm not the only one. So have other multiple published peer-reviewed researchers. In my research, I've shown that more complex literacy targets produce greater gains. And using a multimodal approach, you can teach this with diverse groups of children. I'm not alone in this. If you look at Trina Spencer and Douglas Peterson's research across diverse groups of children using a multimodal approach, they've shown that you can use complex literacy targets and you're going to get greater gains because more complex targets produce greater gains, period. So what have I heard in response to the evidence? I've heard, but that's not developmentally appropriate. You need to go where the child is and take the next tiny, smallest step above that. That's what we call plus one. 
So I don't drink that Kool-Aid because this to me is emotionally based practice. This is not evidence-based practice. I say to these people, show me the numbers. And they can't show you the numbers. And the reason they can't show you the numbers is because the numbers are clear that when you keep all things the same, except for the treatment target, you're going to get greater gains when the treatment target is more complex. Speech, language, and literacy as well, the latest research is showing an augmentative and alternative communication. So let's move on to number two, the second reason why the words developmentally appropriate really need to change because they don't at all suggest where we want to go in innovating practice. They take us back in time instead of forward in time. And that is because Who is this developmentally appropriate for? So we have children with autism who have auditory processing problems, who process language oftentimes through their eyes instead of their ears. And what I mean by that is many of them learn to read. And then by learning to read, they learn to speak. Many of the children with autism know their letters and they know their numbers before they're able to say mama and papa and doggy and juice. And that's because they have strong visual processing skills. And they also love their letters. And that's perhaps because letters are dependable. They're always going to be the same. The A looks like the A and the B looks like the B and the number one looks like the number one. And there isn't a lot of variation. And there's comfort in that. And being able to process something in which it's not changing on you all the time. There's familiarity. And in that familiarity, that is that in itself, of course, is going to be calming, which is important for our children with autism, because as we've talked about in many episodes, a lot of these children are going through long-term trauma in the sense that their sensory systems are not processing information well, and the sensory systems keep us safe. Because they're not processing information well, they're feeling unsafe for a long period of time. And that can cause this long-term trauma. So what is beneficial for children with long-term trauma? Routine, familiarity. So letters and numbers, many of the children I work with autism love letters and numbers. So what do I do? I take the letters and numbers and I will go ahead and embed them into educationally rich activities. It's not because I want to teach them letters and numbers, but it's because I want to include them in the learning experience. Because I know that if I include their interest in the learning, there's going to be greater outcomes. I also know that I can take that love of letters and numbers and put it into new learning experiences. And I know that children with autism that have more experiences with a greater variety of activities have greater outcomes. So I don't just want to do letters and numbers every day, but I want to take those letters and numbers and I want to blend them into a variety of different activities. So in doing that, and I do this in my CIS membership on purpose, I put a lot of letters and numbers within the activities that are educationally rich and theme-based and based on the sound of the week. 
it's not because I want to teach them letters and numbers, but it's because I want to create inclusive learning activities that is inclusive for all types of learners and all types of interests, diverse learners. So what have I heard as a result? I've heard criticism that's not developmentally appropriate. So once again, when you talk about developmentally appropriate, there's these ideas that you have to fit in this box when it comes to learning. And if you step outside of this box in either how you present information, how you share information, or how you express information in learning, that's considered not developmentally appropriate. So we have to rethink intervention because we're not only teaching children who are neurotypical. We are teaching children who are neurodivergent. And that means we need to take a neurodivergent approach to learning. So the second reason why is yes, the letters and numbers are in there. And yes, there's a reason for that because I want to include all types of learners into these educationally rich activities. And by the way, According to the research, it's not the worst thing for children to enter kindergarten having strong letter and number knowledge. Let's open that developmentally appropriate box out and let's rethink it. The third reason why I do not like the terms developmentally appropriate, and that's because it prescribes that this is how children should decode or process the world in this type of manner. So let me give you some examples. If I go to a developmental textbook, which I did for this podcast episode, I looked at what is developmentally appropriate for three to four-year-olds, which is the age group I specialize in. And one of them is they should be able to sit for a five-minute time period. They should be able to have quiet hands. They should be able to follow verbal directions, share, take turns, sustain eye contact to the speaker. They should be able to interact appropriately with toys and appropriately with others. So all of these ideas is that you're going to encode or you're going to express yourself in this developmentally appropriate manner. And if children don't express themselves in this manner between the ages of three to four years, what are you going to hear? That's not developmentally appropriate. Your child is lying on the ground. That's not developmentally appropriate. Your child is not sitting for five minutes. That's not developmentally appropriate. So once again, these words are words that weaponize kind of being outside of that box and being neurodivergent in the way you process the world. If you don't process it in this typical manner that only a small portion of the population is able to, then you are no longer developmentally appropriate. And once again, I see developmentally appropriate is very close to the definition you'd see in a dictionary, which is relating to what's acceptable and what fits in. So now we're going to go to the fourth reason why developmentally appropriate, I just think has no place in best practices and early intervention. And that's because of the way that the children encode information or the way that they express themselves. So once again, I went to a textbook to see how should three and four-year-olds express themselves? What is considered developmentally appropriate? 
And it was saying these things, that they show concern when a friend cries. I guess they're supposed to pat their back and say, are you okay? Well, what I see a lot of is children covering their ears and screaming and crying when their friends cry. They're able to copy adult behaviors. And what I hear a lot of, yeah, maybe are copying adult behaviors, but it's not the four-letter words we'd hope for. They're able to take turns. They're able to copy the behavior of their friends. They're able to easily separate from their parents. They're able to handle changes or major changes in their routine. They're able to dress and undress themselves. So a lot of children we know do not fit these age three to four standards. And what does that mean? Well, people would say, well, then it's not developmentally appropriate. So once again, this developmental appropriate is kind of a weapon that is used to say that if you are not fitting in this neurotypical narrow band of expectations, that your behavior is not acceptable. So I really think that we can do better than that. These are the four reasons why I'm saying developmentally appropriate just has no place, this terminology, for effective intervention. So the question I leave you with is, is the word developmentally appropriate really simply a euphemism for ableism? And ableism is this belief that typical is superior. So when I mean that, when we're talking about developmentally appropriate, it's this idea that when you're doing therapy targets, are they typical therapy targets? Because that's superior. When you're asking what kind of interests are you going to include in your educationally rich play activities, are they developmentally appropriate? Are they typical? Because that's what's superior. So this sounds like ableism to me. And number three, when we talked about how children process information, are they decoding this information in a developmentally appropriate information way? I think that's it, saying, are they doing it in a typical manner? Because that's what's superior. And lastly, when I talked about how are they encoding information, how are they expressing themselves? And once again, that's very close to this ableism is are they doing it typically, which is the developmentally appropriate superior way of doing it? So instead of asking, is this a developmentally appropriate practice, each and every day I do ask a question. And this question is this, does it work? Yeah, does it work? This is the question we want to ask. We want to take that emotionality out of evidence-based practice. EBT stands for evidence-based practice, not emotionally-based practice. And what we're going to talk about instead is we're going to say, is this effective practice? So when it is not effective, we need to do something different. Instead of standard quo, instead of saying it's the child that's not developmentally appropriate, the child's behavior, or it's my lessons that are not developmentally appropriate, that's the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is that this idea that you can have this developmentally appropriate practice, that children behave in a developmentally appropriate way, that you can make play experiences that are developmentally appropriate, all of that idea that we're talking about here is false. There's no such thing 
is developmentally appropriate practice. All we're talking about here is ableism. And we're talking about this idea that there's this typical practice that's superior to all others, developmentally appropriate. So what I'm going to say instead is we take this word developmentally appropriate and we choose something better. Let's take that out of our vernacular. We simply should not be using this word in early childhood education because it really is the opposite of what it claims to be. We're really talking about double speak when we talk about developmentally appropriate being an appreciation for unique members of a community. That's opposite talk. Instead, I want to change that word. What I propose that we use instead is effective practice. So I'm going to read this again. And this is the vision that I have for early intervention. I'm going to take out the words developmentally appropriate. I'm going to take my red pen. I'm going to edit that out. And I'm going to use my blue pen. I'm going to put in effective practice. And let's read this again. Okay. Effective practice are methods that promote each child's optimal development and learning through strength-based, play-based approach to joyful, engaged learning. Effective practice is recognizing the multiple assets all young children bring to the early learning program as unique individuals and as members of families and communities. Building on each child's strengths and taking care to not harm any aspect of each child's physical, cognitive, social, or emotional well-being. Educators design and implement of learning environments to help all children achieve their full potential across all domains of development and across all content areas. Effective practice recognizes and supports each individual as a valued member of the learning community. As a result, to be an effective practice, it must also be culturally, linguistically, an ability appropriate for each child. That's what we're talking about. When I said effective practice, we weren't speaking double speak. We weren't speaking both sides of the coin. We were speaking very clearly about what works and what doesn't work. And what does work is when we embrace diversity, when we embrace a child's unique strengths, when we embrace a child's cognitive diversity. That's what effective practice is. So I want you to take all of this information and make sure to get my book, get it now if you didn't get it yet and leave a review, 32 Lessons That Create Lifelong Change in Autism Intervention. And I want to hear from you and tell me what you think. I know you're going to love it. Roll up your sleeves and make the world a better place one child at a time. You're always going to be first.